Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. (laughs) Today's guest believes that we need to tear down walls in order to heal. She's a mom, an ex-Googler, a podcaster, and she has faced the ultimate challenges of choice. Jesse Sherleff, welcome. Hello. Hi, can you hear me? I can. How'd the move go? Oh my gosh, I should turn off this virtual background so you can see I'm standing in a closet with nothing in it. Wow. I've been there. Yes, I would actually love to talk about that because you are this type A perfectionist, need to have a plan for everything, right? And no matter how much you plan a move, inevitably something is going to be thrown your way that feels like the rug is being pulled out from under you, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. What do you remember about your move still that was like that? We, we have the weirdest move, right? Because we moved at the end of June, the girls finished school in Chicago. And then we did a week in Michigan as we were driving out East. And then we spent the summer on Cape Cod. And so we didn't move into our house until like the middle of September, basically. And in the middle of that, my husband had unplanned back surgery So he was completely useless, basically. And we were also in the middle of the pandemic. And from a moving perspective, I had paid people to unpack me because I knew that, like, you know, I wasn't going to get help. And they just didn't show up. What? (laughs) Yeah, it just, they were just like, we couldn't find anybody. I was like, okay. I feel like I've had so many instances in my life because I am someone who is, type A, like perfection is not necessarily the right word that like resonates with me, but like control. And I don't know. I just have had so many different like moments in my life where I've had to just be like, okay, like I can only control what I can control. And I'm just going to roll with the punches and see what happens. And the move was very much one of those things. Even just like trying to find a house to buy in the middle of the pandemic from a different state was that same thing. Yeah. So did you own in Chicago? Yeah, we owned in Chicago. And when you moved, were you renting or you had a place? So we closed on, well, we got an offer accepted on a house in May, but we didn't close until August. And this was the fourth house that we had put offers on because we, you know, I mean, it was, in the middle of 2021, multiple houses in the two towns we were looking at were, you know, going sight unseen, well over asking, no contingent. I mean, there was just, it, it's insane. It, it still is. It's probably even worse now than when, than when we were going through it. But it just, I remember looking at Greg at one point and being like, 
okay, if we keep getting offers not accepted, where's our line where we rent an apartment? <laughs> I was like, I have to register Lucy for kindergarten. Like this kid needs to start kindergarten. Yeah, that is stressful. On top of moving and your people that you relied on not helping unpacking. I mean, there's just so much. It's crazy. Like we, you know, our house is going onto the market on Friday. We're renting a house in Houston because- we don't know necessarily how the schools are going to work out, you know, which neighborhood we want to be in. You know, my husband started a job seven weeks before I moved here and we ordered a dryer because there wasn't one and literally it got delivered to Chicago. And they're oh like, is there anybody that can return it for you? I'm like, no, the reason we bought a dryer is because we're moving out of Chicago. Like the billing address was Chicago. The delivery address was Houston. So I spent two hours on the phone with like Best Buy yesterday, but these things doesn't matter if you input it correctly, like inevitably there's going to be something like that that happens. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. Like, oh, uh, no problem. I'll just go to my husband's stepmom's apartment that she manages and throw in a load. Right. You're like, I'll figure it out. Yes. You know, I heard you interviewed on this other infertility podcast. And one thing you said was, you know, you were like kind of an overachiever and everything that you really set out to do kind of came easily to you, but then motherhood like threw you for a loop. Yeah. I can relate to that a lot. And I would love you to talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to sound conceited, but I was one of those kids who, you know, school came easy to me. I never really had to, you know, apply a lot of pressure on myself. I was not a super competitive person. So even with athletics, like my friends were all super competitive and I was like, you know what, like this is fun, but I'm not my thing anymore. So I'm just going to pivot to like some other sport and, and try it. And, and I would be good. And it was, it wasn't amazing, but I was, I was good. I got the good grades. I went to the good school. I got the good job. I, you know, was at Google for 13 and a half years. And so I approached becoming a mom, like everything else that I did in my life, which was like, no big deal. I like th this should be easy. And for me, it, it wasn't, it was a journey to say the least and filled with so many emotions, so much shame, so much guilt, so much anger, so much just so much. It was the first time in my life where I wasn't quote unquote good at something right off the bat. And so that was just like even my journey to becoming a mom. And I put a lot of blame on my body. I had a lot of shame around it. I'm not a particularly religious person, but I mean, you know, like culturally, societally, religiously, we say that women are supposed to like, that is our job. And I couldn't do that in the way that was quote unquote typical. It was really, really hard. And it was probably the first time in my life where I was like, oh shit, this isn't easy. And it taught me a lot in terms of lessons because then I went on to, you know, eventually become pregnant. I have two amazing little humans, both IVF babies. And my oldest is neurodiverse. And that's like, a whole nother thing, right? Like then, then motherhood in itself, is it not something that I was like, quote unquote, good at. And I'm constantly learning and pivoting and realizing that we learn something new every day. Yeah. That's a lot right there. 
You know, when I became pregnant and became a mom, you know, the first one you're like reading all these books and you're like looking at the people around you and that whole comparison thing is awful. And I really like when I think back to it, I feel like I was overtaken by becoming a mother. (laughs) I don't think I got a babysitter for like a good 18 months. Like I would get my little one to sleep and I wouldn't move from the chair until the child woke up. I mean, it was ridiculous how much I let that child overtake me. But I get that, right? Because that is what is considered to be a good mom. Like that you get praised for that, right? Like so often I remember, so when my oldest was a few weeks old and I was reading one of those books, like the, you know, happy, healthy baby. I don't remember which one it was. It was like a British woman. Everyone told me to read it. And I actually purposely didn't read any pregnancy books while I was pregnant because I had had, you know, so many issues and my oldest daughter was a twin and we lost our son in my second trimester of pregnancy. And so I just was like, I'm not going to read anything. So here I am sitting in the like nursing chair that we have in my daughter's room. I finally had gotten her to sleep and I'm like reading this book and I will never forget literally like reading the sentence, like at this, like, it's like at whatever week she was like six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it was at this stage, you should know the cries of your child. If if the cry is, it's a hungry cry, or if the cry is a I'm tired cry, or if it's like a wet type, right. And I just remember sitting there and I'm like, I, I threw the book across the room and I was like devastated because still to this day, I could not distinguish any of my children's cries. Like they were all cries to me. Like they were all, and I just, I was like, I'm failing. I'm six weeks into this and I'm eight weeks or whatever it was. And I'm failing at this thing that I wasn't right. Like I was not failing at it, but because I was reading it in this book by this expert and everyone else was telling me it'll get easier. Like it sucks, but you know, and, and it was like, all I wanted to do was protect this, this little human that I had fought so freaking hard to have. I get it. Like I get why it's consuming. It's, it's all consuming in so many ways. Oh my God too. And that just reminds me like your husband also doesn't know what to do in so many situations. I even remember, like, I thought nursing was just going to literally be like so natural. And right. It took multiple consultants in the hospital and even coming to our place for that to work out. And it's frustrating for the baby. It's frustrating for the mommy. It's frustrating for the husband. And also, you know, I've had a couple of miscarriages. What's like, what is it like for the male? My husband actually cried, you know, with my grandfather when it happened. And I am interested in what was it like for you and your relationship to go through loss? and fertility with your husband. Did he share any of that with you? Yeah. So it's such a good question. And I actually, on my podcast, I've actually had my husband on twice and we've actually talked about this because I think so often, right? Like infertility in general. So one in eight couples struggle to conceive naturally. That's a lot of people. Like think of all the people that, you know, and like think of one in eight of them, right? Like there are a lot of people struggling and not talking about it. And I understand why people are not talking about it. And then the statistics gets even more surprising or not surprising if you're sort of in this world, but one in four women have a miscarriage or a loss of a child, right? Like 
one in four women. That's like, I literally looked down my block and I'm like, holy shit, the amount of miscarriages that must have happened that like, again, nobody is talking about. And so like, if we as women are feeling shame and stigma around this, I can only imagine what partners are feeling like, because right. Then you're talking about emotions and like feelings and that's shit that our society doesn't necessarily accept of men, which is such BS. And that's like a whole nother thing. So yeah, I mean, my husband and I have talked about it and admittedly, it's not something that we talked a lot about while we were going through the journey. I think that it was such a emotional roller coaster for myself. So like, for example, we started with medical intervention by using Clomid plus IUIs. Clomid is a type of drug. IUI is a way to inseminate. And I went through again, like, this is going to work. Like first time, no big deal. Like positive thinking again, like that overachiever in me of like, of course this is going to work. And it didn't. And I'll never forget. I can't, I was just coming out of the shower. My husband had already left for work and I looked down and I'd gotten my period and I literally curled up in a ball, completely naked, still like soaking wet and just sobbed like guttural sobbing. And I called my husband and I couldn't even speak. Like I just called him and he could like hear. And he was like, oh, like, I, I he probably thought I was like dying or something. And he immediately turned around and, you know, got, came back and, and just sat there and held me. And I didn't once, like, I was not in the mental state to even ask him like how he was feeling about it. And so I share that because it was, it was such a journey, I think for each of us, where we were so in our own world and trying to support each other in it, that it wasn't until after we had gone through you know, our journey and had two amazing little humans where we did start to unpack it and talk about it. And he, he has really opened up. And this is one of the things that I love about my husband so much is that he does talk about it. We've had friends since who have gone through infertility and he always offers to, you know, be a shoulder or listen, or just provide thoughts, which I think is so unique from a male perspective, because it's again, not something that people talk about generally. And it's definitely not something people talk about from a male perspective. I love that. He just held you what a good guy. Cause truthfully, when you're in the middle of that, I don't even think you have the words for it. No. And to be honest, if he had probably said anything, I probably would have been kind back. <laughs> like I was so in my own grief and my own stuff. And so was he, right? And so I think that just being present for each other and just being there was how, was how we were able to deal with it in that moment. And even when we lost our son, you know, I was, I was in my second trimester of, of pregnancy and it was gut-wrenching and horrible. And, you know, for, for us in particular, we were so freaking excited to finally be pregnant. And then it didn't even cross my mind. That's something that be okay with the pregnancy that, you know, our son might be so sick. And again, it was some of those moments of just like, I have very vivid, like visceral memories of like being in the doctor's room where we found out you know, that first sonogram where you, you start to suspect that something is wrong, but they haven't said anything to you yet. Sitting in the, the specialist pediatric echocardiogram room, cardiologist at Children's, and sitting there and all we could do was just literally like grasp onto each other's hands and just, and just be there and try to ingest all of this because it's so overwhelming. And I'm Thank really glad he was there. And oh, yeah. you weren't experiencing that alone. I actually heard the words, there is no heartbeat alone. 
oh. that I know it's like medical staff have to deliver that, but like, those are the hardest words to hear. Oh, of course. Of course. Oh. And to be alone. Oh, I'm giving you, I want to give you a hug right now. It was now. brutal. I mean, I did call my dad. I think I called my dad before I called my husband, but God, I am glad that your husband was at least by your side. Some of yeah. these things, I don't even know. I could never deliver that. I don't know how medical professionals do that day in and day out. I actually at one point thought I wanted to become a doctor. And then I thought about myself and I was like, I don't like blood. And I really don't like, I wouldn't want to tell, you know, a child that they had cancer or, and so I just was like, you know what, this is not the profession for me. It's like delivering hard news time and time again. And obviously that's not the only way that you can get into the medical field, but I took, I took a hard left from medicine, which is what I truly like for years said I was going to go into that field and ended up in sales. Wow. That's crazy. Do you feel comfortable talking a little bit more about what happened with the pregnancy? Yeah. So for us, I have IVF children. And so we had gone through the gamut of testing. I actually do carry a genetic marker for SMA, which I was not at all aware of. That was not something that was like known in our family. And what is uh, that? SMA is spinal muscular atrophy. Hold on. Something like that. Something like that. I, should like I actually it. found out that I carried the gene for something too. Thank so, God my husband didn't have it. Same thing. My husband didn't have it. So again, I didn't think anything of it. And it was not something that was known in our family. So like, right. Same. It just, I was like, who knew? So in our, in my mind, I was like, oh, we are, we are set. Like we are good, good to go. And so we went through the process. We, you know, implanted two embryos. So obviously we knew that there was a, a chance that we would have twins we got the call, the blood test came back positive. My numbers were really high. So we suspected it would be twins and it was, and it was amazing and overwhelming and, and all the things. And we started to plan for it, right? Like we bought a bigger house in Chicago. I remember specifically being like, we're going to paint this room gray because it's going to be a perfect color for a boy and a girl. You know, we started to plan our life. Like I knew the exact stroller that I wanted for twins. And we started to tell people And the weird thing is, this is like such a weird thing, like looking back on it now, as we were leaving. So like when you go through infertility, you actually graduate and like from your infertility doctor, and then you like go to your OB. And so when you're going through infertility, you actually get sonograms every week. So like I have seen my children like go from like literally like a dot all the way to like a bean to medicine is both amazing and also like terrifying in a lot of ways. And so you graduate. And I remember literally as we were leaving, my husband turning to my fertility doctor and saying, like, is it okay for us to tell people that we're pregnant now? Because you graduate around nine weeks. And he was like, statistically speaking, like you're more in the clear than you're not at this point. So feel free to tell people. He's like, but you might not want to tell them you're having twins. And I remember thinking, like, I like remember being like, that's weird to say, but like, didn't like think anything of it. Anyway, fast forward, our appointments are all fine. I was a high risk. So I was again, seeing my OB more than a typical non-high risk pregnancy was. And we were going in for the standard 12 week appointment, but I was going in later because we had been on vacation. And I just remember sitting in the sonogram room. And again, this is my first pregnancy. I don't really know to suspect or like expect, but again, like, you know, when you just get that gut feeling of like something is wrong and they're just like spending a lot of time measuring and I'm like, there's something, there's something weird here. And so the sonographer 
looks at us and she's like, you know what? Like, I'm going to like have you guys, like there's something off. I'm going to have you guys speak to the doctor again. And again, that just like that gut feeling of like the floor is being taken out from underneath you. And so they explained to us that our son has micronachia, which is that his jaw was not forming correctly. It was sort of being pushed in and that it could be a whole host of different things. But the other marker that was concerning was that the spinal tap fluid, when they measure the, the neck, the nuclear fluid was higher, was elevated. It was not where they, within normal range. And so again, floor, you know, falls out from under, from underneath us. We go through the genetic testing through the blood work and they start to explain to us like all the potential possibilities based on what it could be, you know, things from, I I can't even like think of some of them, like all of these crazy, like chromosomal genetic disorders that like, frankly, I'd never even heard of until this point. So fast forward, we get like thrown into a bunch of specialist appointments. I have now I'm starting to see a maternal high-risk doctor. I am starting to see a geneticist. I am seeing like all of these people. So we do this whole thing of genetic testing and nothing comes back with genetic markers. So in my mind, I'm like, cool. Awesome. Like we've passed the test. Like there's nothing wrong. Again, fast forward, lots of different appointments. The next thing they want us to do because is to see a pediatric cardiologist, because sometimes the marker, the spinal fluid can be a a marker for cardiac issues. So we're in Chicago, one of the best children's hospitals in the world. We go to Lori's and actually have a really good friend who at the time was a resident dietitian on the cardiac floor. So she knew the doctors. Like I felt really comfortable. And in my mind, I'm like, again, hearts, there's crazy things that they could do with hearts. So like, if there's something wrong, then they can fix it. Long story short, after lots of different tests, our son ended up having a congenital heart defect that was so severe that they were telling us that, you know, even if he made it through pregnancy and I made it through pregnancy. My daughter made it through pregnancy and he was born. And if he was even born at full term, which were twins is 36 weeks, that to expect at least 25 plus surgeries within his first year of life. And again, like the floor is like pulled out from under, under us, like the rug is pulled out from underneath us. And we are just sitting there trying to understand and like wrap our head around like the quality of life that our son would have the quality of life that, you know, we would have the quality of life that our daughter would have as as her twin brother. Right. And we were so fortunate to, again, to even be in the situation where our insurance was at the point where we could understand all this. Like I, I fully own the fact that I was really, really privileged and fortunate to be in that position where I had access to some of the world's best doctors. I had access to all of this information and so many people do not. And so a very long story short, you know, we were asked to make a decision and it was the hardest to say, I'm going to probably start crying. The hardest decision that I've ever made in my entire life. It is a decision I would never wish on anybody. And we, for a whole host of reasons, decided to medically reduce our son in order to ensure that the safety of my daughter and the safety of my own life would survive the pregnancy. The way that I dealt with it was that I didn't deal with it. In fact, I was on a plane three days later for work because I was really good at the time of compartmentalizing 
and just shoving down my emotions and, and not really dealing with things. It wasn't until my second daughter was born and my girls are eight, uh, 23 months apart that I was like, I'm not living my life. Like I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. I'm not happy. And I couldn't figure out why. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that I had been repressing and like not dealing with a lot of the shit that had gone on in my infertility journey and, and the loss of, of Clark, my, my son. Whoa. You know, it's so interesting. I was just talking to my best friend today about when you don't face something that's really, really hard, how sometimes you are presented with the same test or similar challenges. Would you say that that relates to the situation at all? So I completely agree with that sentiment. And for me, it's just like buzzing of not this. And sometimes it's like, it starts as a whisper and then it becomes like someone talking and then it's like a, something is like banging against my head of like, not this, not this, not this. You know, in relation to the journey with Lucy and Clark, it doesn't feel like it applies there. But I think the lesson that I needed to learn in that journey was twofold. One, I think it was the, again, that first lesson of realizing that there's so much in life that I cannot control and it is not worth the energy or the emotions or like the heartache that comes with like trying to control everything. And I think that really did set me up for motherhood while I still struggle with all of that. It was like that first lesson that I needed in order to realize like, Hey, you've been really good at most things in your life, but like, you're not good at this. And like, you're, we're going to really, really show you that you cannot control everything and you have to figure out what you can control in order to, in order to move forward. And I think the second thing that this journey has taught me is really that you only see the tip of the iceberg. I have this moment that I will never be able to get out of my head. I'm on the red line in Chicago commuting into work. And it was a Monday morning and, you know, I'm like dressed as I normally would dress for every day. And I'm like staring at my reflection and it's like, this is pre-COVID. So like, it's hot and gross and smelly and like packed like sardines in the red line and like everyone's commuting to work. And I remember looking around and just being like, no one would know the shit show that I just went through. Like no one would know by looking at me that I'd just gone through years of, of infertility had finally become pregnant and then just had to make this devastatingly hard decision and no one would know. And so I think that lesson that I needed to learn there was to really think about how I was judging others and how I can approach situations with much more empathy, approach situations with a lot less judgment and really be curious to myself and to others and recognize that we all have masks that we put on because life is hard. And so how do you, you know, if you're able to take off that mask, even just for one second, like what can you learn about somebody else? I love that. And that really transitions nicely into you starting a podcast because I've seen in your newsletter, even, which I've heard you say writing is therapeutic for you and it helps you find your voice that we are all very much more alike than we're not. So can you talk a little bit about why it was important for you to share your truth? Yeah. So again, I go back to, there was a moment a few years ago where I was standing at 
in our house in Chicago, we had a double vanity sink and I was standing at the sink and I was holding my electric toothbrush in my hand and Greg, my husband looked at me and we've been to, we've been married almost 10 years. It'll be 10 years in September. We've been together almost 14. And so he's, he asked me a question that he's asked me thousands of times. He just simply asked me, are you happy? And for some reason that morning, the truth just blurted out of my mouth. And I said, no. And that answer scared him and it scared me. And I remember we had a little clock in our bathroom and I remember looking at the clock to like buy myself some time. It was six or three in the morning and I'm not a morning person. I remember like looking at the clock and like getting angry that like I'm dealing with this at like six or three in the morning. And, but in that moment, I realized I had a choice. I could backpedal and like make a joke of it. Or I could own for the first time, probably a long time that I wasn't happy. And it was the moment where I realized I had lost my voice. I'd been living my life for so many other people, for my children, for my husband, for my family, but I lost who I was without all of those labels. Like who was Jessie at her core? I couldn't tell you. I could not tell you. And so to me, that was my moment where I realized that I would do anything I could to reclaim my voice and own my stories and and be able to speak my truth. And so fast forward about a year and a half, and I launched my podcast called This Is My Truth. And my mission is really to create community and connection through sharing personal stories, because as I started to speak my truth and share my journey, it was so eye-opening to me how many people told me me too and it wasn't like every person I talked to had lost a child or had gone through infertility or had even gone through that path of a medical reduction some had it's actually surprising how many women have actually chosen medical reductions yet no one talks about it and yeah I've never heard of that I've never even heard of that. Like, I feel so ignorant. To be honest, I never would have heard of it if I hadn't gone through the journey myself. And so many people ask me like, well, what happened with Clark? Like I had to deliver him. Like, it, like he doesn't disappear, you know, when I delivered Lucy and like the afterbirth, like I had to deliver him too. And that's actually one of my biggest regrets was that I was not strong enough to actually look at him and see him. And there's a lot of reasons why I couldn't do that in that moment. But I remember my, the OB who delivered Lucy looking at me and saying, it's taken care of. We'll let you know if like, we'll we'll run more tests. We'll let you know if anything comes up. And that was it. And, you know, I, I still live with some guilt and shame around the fact that I wasn't strong enough to look at him or hold him. And like, again, like I said, there was a whole host of reasons why, but it's those moments that we've just been talking about that I found a lot of relief and honestly therapy and like writing about them. And that to me allowed me to like start to speak about them because to me, that process has been so healing and it is the realization, right? That despite the fact that, you know, you have not gone through my journey. I've not gone through your journey. There's always that common thread. I've yet to connect with somebody who like, even if they've like had a completely different upbringing or background or even different values and beliefs than me, like if I approach the conversation with genuine curiosity, like there's always that common thread. And I think that is so important to remember because 
I believe our superpowers as humans is our ability to create connection, to have empathy and be curious. And so often we don't rely on those things, but when we lean into them, like there's amazing people out there. I actually listened to a variety of interviews that you did with other people. And I noticed that there was a wide range of shows that you've done. And I, I loved that. I mean, you've spoken with people from different upbringings than yourself and from different areas and on different subject matters. And I love that you can find a common thread with different people. I think that's amazing. I honestly think that everybody should do that. Yeah. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's interesting because like my goal in life is to raise basically not assholes. Like my goal in life is to raise two little humans who, you know, can have a conversation with somebody who may have a different belief system, may have a different value system, have backgrounds that are so different again. And so I recognize there's so much privilege and fortune that, that I have and therefore my children have. And to be able to like go into a conversation and have a conversation, and that does not mean they need to agree, but to be able to respect and see and hear and understand where the other person is coming from, I just feel like the world is so polarized right now. Like if we all just leaned in a little bit, and like approach things with genuine curiosity, like what could happen? I know I've learned a ton. I've had, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've learned from the mistakes and I try time and time again, not to shy away from uncomfortable conversations because they make me uncomfortable, but really say like, this is a learning opportunity and and I'm going to lean in. Have you had any uncomfortable conversations with your parents? And I am curious how you're alike with your parents and how you're dislike from your parents. That's a million dollar question. (laughs) I feel like I need to give you some context. So I come from a family on one side on my mother's side, it is Italian immigrants, Catholic. My dad's side, Irish immigrants, Catholic. So there's a whole host of like Catholic guilt that like runs in my family. And my both sets of my grandparents immigrated at a time when to survive, they had to assimilate. So like, for example, my grandparents on my mom's side refused to teach my parents or my mom and her two sisters Italian because they wouldn't have assimilated. Also in that they didn't deal with emotions. And so like, I'm very like my parents in that like big emotions, any kind of emotions, we, we just shove down and compartmentalize. I can literally tell you count on one hand, how many times I've seen either of my parents cry. It's just like, we just we don't, I found out that my grandfather, again, my maternal grandfather had cancer for a second time, but like eavesdropping on a phone conversation. Like we just don't, ha- my mom had a friggin' brain tumor, had a seizure in the middle of New York city. on like 72nd Avenue or something like that. We all three of us, we have th- she has three girls got a text message about it. <laughs> and so, right. Like I, I share some of this because we just don't do emotions. And so that has been a big unlearning journey for me of like, how do I, like my oldest daughter in particular has really big emotions and I want her to have them. And so like, I've had to learn how to deal with my own emotions in order for her to do it. And then how are we dissimilar? I think in that same vein, I want to unlearn a lot of the things that I learned through growing up. And so I do lean into uncomfortable conversations, which makes them really uncomfortable. And There's never a loss of love or support. Like I know my parents are so proud of me and like my mom refuses to listen to any podcast episode. (laughs) Like she's, she, and we've had this conversation. She's like, 
I love you. I'm so proud of you. It really makes me uncomfortable. So like, I'm not going to listen. And I'm like, that's cool. <laughs> I think that sort of like highlights how we're similar and how we're different. Wow. Yeah. I can relate to all of that. I'm one of three girls. My mom's side of the family also does not share emotions. Actually, after my mom had breast cancer, I like wanted to hug her and that was too much. Like, yeah, that's what I needed. It wasn't what she needed. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that can be hard. It can be. It can be. I mean, similarly, when my mom had her brain tumor, I was living in Chicago at the time. My one sister was in Texas and I have another sister who still lives on Long Island. And you know, she went to the hospital and my mom similarly was like, why are you here? She was like, because I need to be here. But my mom never wants to be a burden for any, any of us. I think that, that again, like that, the mentality that has come through from the Italian immigration and, and that, and, you know, my grandfather was a patriarch of our family, loved him so much, looked up to him so much, but like, he didn't believe girls should be educated. And so from my mom, I've learned, you know, my mom is the youngest of three daughters. She's the only one who has her master's degree. She got both her undergraduate and her master's degree while raising a family. My dad, you know, also comes from a family of not education, not being a priority. He only has his associate's degree, but managed to, you know, get a job at a company and was there for 30 plus years and worked his way up into management. Right. And so there was a lot of what I grew up valuing was like stability, financial stability. Like that's why I get good grades, go to a good school, get a good job. I almost turned down the job at Google. My dad, I called my dad to like, I don't know, like, I don't know why, but for some reason I like turned to him for this advice. I was in an elevator at school and I was like, dad, I think I'm going to turn the job down. And he was like, you don't turn down Google. And I was like, no, I think I might like, I want to stay here with Jake, who was my boyfriend at the time. And, you know, I have some other offers and he was like, nope, nope. And I didn't, I, you know, I listened, I heeded my dad's advice and I'm so grateful I did, but it was just that like, they're not one to take risks. Whereas sometimes I think they look at me and they're like, you quit your job. Like you're, you're doing a podcast. Like there's, again, they're so proud, but they're like, that's so, it's so scary for them. Do you think it's that generation though? Like, I, I feel like it's the generation, like they did work somewhere for 30 years. Yeah. I think it's generational. I think it's again, coming from both of their immigrant backgrounds, especially like Irish and Italian, you know, Italian in particular, like family comes first. Like there is no I, it is very much like family mentality. Like I remember there was a summer that I did not go on our family vacation. I did not go because I had three jobs and I did not have a license at this time. And my, so my grandparents, my grandmother did not ever learn to drive. So my grandfather slept us all everywhere. Anyway, so my grandfather had to pick me up from being a camp counselor and drive me to my next job. And that entire way, granted, we all lived in it. We lived in a small town, but it was, so it was like a 10 minute drive, but that entire 10 minute drive, he literally lectured me on how I was disappointing him that I did not go on the family vacation and chose to work instead. <laughs> And right. And so like, you'd think that he would be proud of the fact that I was like trying to be independent and do my own thing and like earn my own money. And no, it was that I had chosen me over my family. And that was the disappointment. I think our generation is actually like 
rethinking things. I don't know if it's better or not, but I do think that we have become a little bit of the me generation where like, what are my thoughts? What are my beliefs? What are my values? Do I have to go to every family event? Do I have to hang out with family that maybe causes anxiety? Maybe not. Yeah. I go back to like actually how we started the conversation about motherhood around like you're putting so much of yourself into this, but like, who are you serving when you're doing that? Right? Like I go back to that six or three moment when I like finally admitted that I was unhappy, like on the outside, I looked like I had this amazingly perfect life. I had two amazing kids who had fought so hard. I had a super supportive partner. I had an amazing leadership position at Google. Like I knew the path that I was on. I had this amazingly beautiful house in the city of Chicago with a yard, which as you know, is hard to get. And I had it all. And yet on the inside, I was numb and I was crumbling for me. And I can obviously only speak to myself in my own experience putting myself last was not serving me at all. And it was therefore not serving my family. It was not serving my husband. It was not serving anyone I was touching because I was miserable, whether I was willing to admit it or not. And so I think that we all sort of have those moments where, you know, for me, it was sort of like a come to Jesus of like, am I willing to admit that I am unhappy, despite the fact that society is telling me I have everything that I should and could want and have the path paved for me of like, what I have in quote for like, what I can have in terms of success? Or can I actually create space and ask myself, like, what is it do I need? Around that same time, someone asked me to put together 50 dreams that I had. And I literally cried because I couldn't do it. Like I could not, I could not come up. I think I came up with like three dreams. Like I just, I couldn't. And it, it was so like, I had forgotten how to dream. And so like, who was that serving? It wasn't serving anybody. And so, yeah, I think that those of us who are ready to come to that point and say, this isn't for me, it's not easy. It's not easy to stand up for yourself, especially again, like having to unlearn all those things that we learned growing up and what society is continuing to tell us. But, you know, you read any recent study and like women are burnt out, like working women are burnt out, stay-at-home moms are burnt out. Like we are exhausted and tired and angry. And I think people are finally ready to talk about it and advocate for what needs to happen in order to change. And for me, that starts by asking the simple question of like, what is it that I need? I truly believe this is probably a controversial statement. Like I truly believe that women can have it all. I think you need to define what all is for yourself and say like F it to anybody else's definition. And by that regards, like you can have it all, but you really have to get very clear on what all means to you and hush the naysayers, which is easier said than done. Have you thought about what having it all looks like? now? Yeah. So for me, I left my corporate job in 2021. I said, F the handcuffs and, you know, really tried my hand at like being a full-time stay-at-home mom. And I've realized it's not for me. I love my children dearly. I'm a much better mom when I have some space for myself and can use my brain in a different way. So for me, what having it all looks like is having a job, a career that offers structure and flexibility and the ability to build something from the ground up and still be able to create a schedule where, you know, I can drop the girls off at the school bus or pick them up 
from it. You know, I don't have to attend every PTO meeting. I don't have to attend every school event, but can I pick and choose the ones that feel really good to me? Like, can I go, you know, be the parent volunteer for a field trip? The answer to that is no, I actually hate that, but my husband loves it. <laughs> I feel like I'm the only mom. It's funny. Like I was with a bunch of mom groups and they're like, are you going to be a chaperoning the field trip? And I was like, no, I could not think of anything less that I would want to do than watch my own child and three other children run around a zoo. And like all the other moms were like, what? I cannot believe you just said that. And I was like, but my husband loves that. And so he's going to go, <laughs> but like, right. Like, again, that's like me knowing who I am and being okay. Like with all the other moms, like who know who cares if they judge me or not, they probably did. And that, like, I could care less because I knew that using my time in that way wouldn't be beneficial for anybody. And so I was much happier actually attending my youngest daughter's preschool graduation and we divided and conquered and that was okay. I love that. One final question. And then I'm going to let you ask a question to my dad, but I'm curious what you would say to people who are afraid to tell their story and they want to get started doing it. Like how can they do it in a small way? Like what are easy, like first steps? and putting yeah. yourself out there. I love that. Cause I get that question a lot. And I think about it a lot myself too, right? Like people often ask me like, how are you so open? And to be completely transparent, I'm open around a lot of different things in my life, but there are some things I'm still working on and unpacking for myself that I don't talk about. And so like first and foremost, to answer your questions, like understanding where your own boundaries are around like speaking your truth and sharing your stories. For me, I only share things that I have like fully unpacked and have like dealt with either in therapy or with coaching or whatever that looks like. And I always ask myself, like, why am I sharing this story? Like, am I sharing it just for a reaction or am I sharing it because I actually think it can, like it made an impact on me and I think it can make an impact on somebody else. If I think I'm just doing it to talk for talk's sake, like I'm not going to share it. So those are some of like my own roles and my own boundaries. And I think that's going to vary for everybody. And then for me, I'll just share sort of what my own process was. It was really, it started with writing and sharing that story with myself first. So I think so often people hear me say, like talking about like owning your story, speaking your truth. And they think about like presenting to a group of thousands of people. It doesn't start that way, right? It starts by actually sitting down and thinking about all those moments in your life that like you can't get out of your head, right? Like we all have those moments where you're like, why is this like random memory popping up? And why does it keep to your point? Like, you know, the things like coming up time and time again, like, why is it coming up? Like to me, those are moments and they need to be unpacked and, and looked at and decided. And so for me, I've created a framework that I use from a writing perspective and it's available to download on my website for free. But it starts with sharing with yourself first and foremost. And then, you know, maybe you graduate to sharing with one other person or two other people and whatever that looks like for you, it just continues to snowball because I've hosted lots of workshops where I create space for women to, to share their stories. And every single time I've done it, I ask the people, you know, the attendees joining and, and ask like, how are you right before they share your story? Like, how are you feeling right now? And people are like terrified, like scared. Like I want to vomit. Like, I, or I can't believe you're making me do this. And then after, right, we create, we create norms and we create ways to make sure that it's a safe space. But then after it's always, I feel so empowered. I feel like something has lifted off my shoulders. I feel relief. And really for me, it's been this journey around like empowerment and confidence and the ability to really own your truth, but it starts with yourself first. 
I love that. What I kind of took from that too, is like, don't talk just for talk's sake. I like that. <laughs> don't talk for talk's sake. That's cool. Really think about your why and maybe start with, you know, hashing it out on paper or even creating a voice note and talking to yourself and thinking about those moments that are in your head or that have stayed with you throughout the years that maybe you need to hash out. That is great. I love that. Yeah. I mean, go ahead. Yeah. Is there anything that you would want to add? No, I mean, like I said, I, I think that it really, again, for me and my own journey, it started with myself. Like it started with creating that space and like asking myself those, like now feels like simple questions, but at the time they did not feel simple. Like they felt like, like to ask myself, like, what is it that I want? It felt so daunting. And so I couldn't start there. Like I had to, I really had to like, think about like, what was preventing me from even answering that question. And so for me, like unpacking those moments was, was hugely helpful because again, and then when I started to share, it made me, it was my aha of like, we all have these moments where we felt alone or isolated. Like, yes, my journey is uniquely my own, but that doesn't mean that other people haven't shared similar experiences or similar feelings. And like that has been so indispensable in terms of like recognizing and realizing that. I love that. I was even thinking about just reaching out to my Facebook group today and saying like, anyone else overwhelmed? You would be surprised literally just by asking things that simple, what comes from that? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think so often we're afraid to like even ask the question, right? It's like, well, I don't want to be like, things that I hear often, like, so when people book a discovery call with me, one of the questions I ask is like, what prevents you from being seen and heard? And, you know, more often than not, it's like fear of judgment, fear of like putting yourself out there, fear of like not looking like I have it together, right? There's so much behind all of that. But when you just like, it's like, a bit of the olive branch, right? It's like, if you just take like a baby step, like you don't have to like air all your dirty laundry. I think so often people like hear my podcast and they're like, oh my God, like you want me to like share what? It's like, no, it's, it's very much about creating that safe space. And it's what comes up in that moment of, of what you're willing to share. And it, I think that there's magic in that. Oh my gosh. Yes. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? Oh my gosh. I feel so much pressure. You know, I, I'd be curious. Of course I have to ask. So the, the question that I actually ask, and you know this because you've been on my podcast, but I'm going to ask your data is what is the truth that you would like to share today? Mm, I like it. And it's uniquely you. Yes. <laughs> okay. So if people would like to have one of those discovery calls or find out more about your dreams and your podcast, where can they find you? Thank you for asking. You can find me at my website, which is www.jessysherleff.com. You can Check me out on the podcast. This is my truth, which is available on all podcast playing platforms. I'm also on LinkedIn at Josh Sherlock, which is I think how we actually originally connected. Yes. And then you can also find me on Instagram at this is my truth podcast. I love your truth. Thank you for being an amazing guest. Thank you so much for having me. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. Yeah. Tell me what your truth is. Good question. I'm not sure. As you know, I've always tried very hard to establish things where I develop myself, but also where I have the passion to keep the legacy of my family's dreams alive. That's old school being carried on. And Jesse's case, she's come from a similar background where she learned also about family values being more important than individual 
not necessarily values, but putting sometimes others before putting yourself on the top of the list. In today's society, you have a lot of people think that they should put themselves first and others in some type of orderly fashion after that. So it is a very interesting concept. And I think that we are all happier if we're able to show humility and compassion for others. I think makes us feel better. I always feel better giving things to other people than having it on the other end where I'm receiving things. I'd rather be giving things than receiving things. Other people want this, want that, have to have this, got to be able to do that. And I'm not in that same category. When Stephanie won the high school championship, individual high school championship tied for first, that was a tremendous thrill to me, even though I've won many tournaments and participated at high levels and have accomplishments. And yet her winning, I think, gave me more joy than any of the accomplishments I did for myself. But that's the way I was brought up, that you hope that your children will be better than you, where they come first. And it hopefully is not in conflict with what you want to do as an individual. I think that's my truth. It's funny because I was watching a video of Robin Williams lately, and Mm -hmm. he also said something along those lines about it really being about others and figuring that out. Right. So like I said, one of us has a philosophy of being inclusive of people. And the other one, to me, sometimes can be exclusive, where if you only are taking care of your own career and you don't stop and smell the roses and share that with people that you love, I think you're missing the boat. (laughs) And if you work your whole life, it goes so quickly and you become 66 years old like I am now and you're ready to retire and you don't have your profession that you're going to be practicing. How do you continue if you have no children and you have no parents and you have no, I guess we get a dog. (laughs) What's interesting, Jesse, is that part of this episode that you shared with Rena is the, the choice of also life and death. And what a very tough choice. And at the moment, when you made that choice for your safety and your daughter's safety, your conscience kind of spooked you a little bit where you were unable to really be happy with yourself and with the way your life was going because this was a very dramatic experience, not only where some people have it a lot easier in making children, but then to go through all kinds of procedures to have children and then to lose one or the choice was made to lose one, wow, it's mind-boggling to say the least. And your conscience a year or so later said, hey, you know, maybe my calling and my truth is to be able to explain to others where they're more informed about the choices of life and death. And you're running a podcast as Rena is, and we find it to be very therapeutic as well, and where we gain wisdom by listening to the stories and the experiences sometimes as dramatic as they can be, where we get to feel what they're going through and where we can hopefully add some commentary and understanding so that we can share our voices and make a difference to others. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. 
If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 